0: Do you wonder how the ancient truth of the Bible intersects with today's news? Do you believe in God's promises to the people and the land of Israel? Welcome to the Lone Star Podcast, a weekly conversation to expand your mind and encourage your soul. Our hosts live in the two Lone Star states, Rabbi Dove Lippman in Israel and Pastor Trey Graham in Texas. This podcast is your opportunity to learn the truth about the God of Israel from two people who love Israel. Please follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new weekly episodes are ready. You ready to be encouraged? Please join Rabbi Dove Lippman and Pastor Trey Graham.
1: We do welcome you to this week's edition of the podcast. So great to have you listeners join us as we walk through the Word of God together, studying this week's Torah portion, the Parashah, the weekly study of the Bible that Jews have been reading together for over 2,000 years. And this week's portion has the Hebrew name Baha Aloha. And that is not very good Hebrew. Rabbi Littman, you can tell us the name. But it means when you raise up, and it comes from the book of Numbers.
2: So first of all, all the listeners have to understand the unbelievable strides uh, and, and, and mastery that the pastor has over Hebrew, because this is a very difficult word to say, and you said it very well. It's parshat baha and like you said, it means to, uh, you know, when you're going up, when you're raising up, and specifically in this case, talking about the way that they set up the candles on the menorah, on the candelabra, in the tabernacle and the temple.
1: We are in the Book of Numbers, chapters 8 9, 10, 11, and 12. A pretty long reading for this week. And as these chapters often begin, Rabbi, the Lord spoke to Moses. He remains the key leader and the one who represents God to the people and people to God. And that's going to
2: continue. It's an amazing thing to see how this continues through the entire book. And even though we're going to have stories of, of potential uprisings and and the people complaining uh he is the one that God chose and he's the one that remains in that position and God is always communicating to the people uh via Moses, sort of establishing the truth of the revelation at Sinai, and the laws and the commandments and the ethics and values uh, that Moses taught in the name of God. This is what's critical. It's always that way. God speaking to the people through Moses, Moses conveying to people the word of God. So you have that intermediary, but he's always speaking uh, in the name of God when it comes to every single commandment.
1: I do have a question at the very beginning of this reading, Numbers chapter 8, verse 4. It says, This was the workmanship of the lampstand... Hammered work of gold from its base to its flowers. It was hammered work according to the pattern which the Lord had showed Moses. So he made the lampstand. So this is the menorah we're talking about, which will go into the tabernacle and later into the temple. My question, Rabbi, is on that pronoun. He made the lampstand. Some readings I see say it's Moses doing it. Some people say, no, God made this. How do you read he there?
2: Yeah, there's an unbelievable discussion about that, and as you go through the commentaries, you really do see differences. My own simple reading of it, it sounds to me uh, like it is uh, Moses, because it seems to say, as God showed Moses, so he did it. But the commentaries talk about that this was a menorah that was chiseled out of a solid piece of gold, and it was something which even the greatest artists in the time who were involved Uh, and putting together the tabernacle and the vessels, could not understand. And God either had to make it himself, or, according to what I believe the simple reading is, that God had to actually show it, Uh, not just words of commandments, but actually show it in a vision to Moses, and in that way it was able to be constructed. And there's lots of commentaries about the symbolism of the menorah, which represents possibly different factions of the Jewish people, people of Israel, chiseled out of one block, uh, sort of symbolizing the unity uh, of of the Jewish people. Some people say that it talks about the wisdom, that it represents the wisdoms of the world, both religious and not religious wisdom, which ultimately also comes from God, and to show that all wisdom comes from one source. So different understandings of why it had to be that way, but it was clearly a vessel which they struggled with uh, in in, in figuring out how to actually make it.
1: The menorah is always a symbol of the light and the fire of God, and we read as Christians in John chapter 8 verse 12, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, and so we understand that light represents truth and wisdom and direction and all of these things, and so the Vessels in the tabernacle are so important as elements of worship. And regarding the tabernacle, you continue in Numbers chapter 8 and you get to the instructions that again the Lord says to Moses to tell the Levites how to do their job. And the first thing, they have to be cleansed, they have to represent holiness and righteousness before the Lord. And so, Rabbi, before we talk about the Levites, do as another reminder for us, differentiate priest and Levite.
2: Absolutely. Um, as we talk about oh, on a regular basis, there were very clear roles uh, that were set aside for different families and different children of specific fathers. So, Levi, Levi, as in Hebrew, was one of the, was the third child of Jacob and one of the tribes. And Within that tribe, you had Aaron, who was the brother of Moses. Children of Aaron, all descendants of Aaron, are Kohanim. They are priests. They continue in their role till today, even without a temple. They do have special roles that they play within our... Uh, life cycle and in the synagogue. Uh, and then you have the broader children of Levi, of Levi, who also have a role to play today and had a significant role in the tabernacle and the temple. So you have those three different levels. You sort of have the, the highest level, which is the Kohanim, the priest, the children of Aaron. Then you have Zooming out a little bit, all the tribe of Levi, and now the Levim who also have a role to play, but not as holy. And then you have the rest of Israel, uh, which is not on the level spiritually of these other tribes, but also certainly have their role to play as well.
1: And to prepare the Levites for their spiritual role, they were to have external cleansing and internal cleansing. And the external cleansing was going to be sprinkled with water and then they were supposed to shave all the hair on their body and then inward cleansing was the offering of a sacrifice which was a young bull so it's both outward and inward readiness and cleanliness before the Lord
2: That's kind of interesting uh we find this throughout the tabernacle and the temple discussion where, of course, there's the spiritual element, which is important, but there's also the physical dimension, which is important, and the, the two coming together. It's something which sometimes we struggle with, and I'm curious to hear from the Christian perspective, because we would think that all that should matter is the spiritual and not the physical, but God put us in the physical world, and if so, there is a role the physical does play within the spiritual, and therefore, yes, there's obviously a spiritual cleansing, but there are physical is that we do uh, to lend itself towards that spiritual cleansing.
1: You talk about internal righteousness versus external righteousness. In the Christian life, we of course agree that what is outward is an exposition or a demonstration of what's inside a person's heart. We know from the study about faith. That without faith it is impossible to please God, says the book of Hebrews chapter 11. And in James chapter 2, this is another New Testament verse. It says, faith, if it has no works, is dead. That's James chapter 2 verse 17. So there's this idea of you can talk it, but then you have to walk it. So using the words of James, faith without works is dead. I think that matches up with what you're talking about, about internal and external holiness as demonstrated by the Levites here in Numbers chapter 8.
2: Very much so. Very much so, and I think that's the concept that we're supposed to draw from it.
1: So let's move into chapter 9 when we talk about the book of Numbers, and you have all these preparations for the people of Israel as they're about to move forward, and it seems like we are One year after the Exodus, one year after the people of Israel left slavery in Egypt and they're in the Sinai region. The Sinai Peninsula is a major part of the map. Everybody's probably seen that. It's part of Egypt today and they're moving toward what we would call Israel proper or the land of promise or the land of Canaan as it's called. And so it's been a year. And that means on the calendar, it's about time for another Passover. They had the Passover the night before they left Egypt when the 10th and final plague came. And then it's time to have Passover again. And so there's two observances, which is very interesting. The regular observance of the Passover and the month of Nisan. But then, Rabbi, there's a provision for those who missed the holiday to be able to have another chance. Talk about the Passover observances.
2: It's a really remarkable chapter and really remarkable story uh, with with incredible ramifications, because the law is that people who are ritually impure, and I'm not going to go into right now how that happens, but one example is people who come into contact with a dead body. They're impure, and they're not allowed to participate in the sacrifice and even in the eating of the Passover offering. So here they are, they're celebrating Passover, and there were people who were impure. And it's really remarkable. They come in verse 6, we're in chapter 9, verse 6. They come to Moshe, and to, to Moses and to Aaron, and they come very close to them. It says they come close to them. And they say in verse 7, why should we lose out? Why, why can't we participate? Why should we lose the spiritual benefits of the Passover holiday and the sacrifice? And they were really bothered by this. And an unbelievable thing happens. Moses seems unsure uh, of exactly what the law is. He turns to God in verse 8 and says, uh, let's wait to see what God commands. And then God actually comes out and says, there's a new law. Somebody who is impure, they, a month later, Passover is on the 14th, 15th actually, but the sacrifice is prepared on the 14th of the Hebrew uh, month of Nisan, One month later, in the month of E.R., they are able to have a makeup holiday. And this was created for them because of their desire to have it. They wanted it so badly that God actually created a mechanism for them uh, to celebrate. And this is amazing, amazing ramifications and a lesson in terms of if you want something badly enough spiritually, uh, God will help make that happen. We have a tradition that open up Uh, A hole the size of a needle for spirituality by yourself, and then God will open up uh, doorways that can store wagons, just this massive door that opens up. And that's the lesson that we learned uh, from this story, the ability of human beings to desire something so badly spiritually that God will do the impossible, the quote-unquote impossible, uh, for them. And it, it's a lesson which comes almost out of nowhere. You, know, you don't expect it to come in the story, but as you read it and you see the people and their desire, uh, all of a sudden unbelievable things uh, start to happen. And that's something which I think all people of faith and spirituality understand in terms of the way God
1: runs the world. It's a beautiful chapter, Numbers chapter 9. I love verse 8. Moses said, Wait, and I will listen to what the Lord will command concerning you. He said, That's a great question. I don't know the answer. Let's go ask God, which is something that we all ought to do more often. Instead of making it up or guessing, let's go ask God. I think that's a great verse. And then it says, that in verse 11, in the second month on the 14th day, which as the rabbi said, is not the month of Nisan anymore. It's the month of Eir. You shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. So you get to have the same observance. And I, I like what you said, that they wanted it so much. It wasn't a burden. They weren't you know relieved that they had to skip out on the holiday celebration or the remembrance of god's deliverance they wanted it so much that as you called it they got a makeup holiday but the other side of the story is in verse 13 of numbers 9 but the man who is clean and not on a journey and yet neglects to observe the passover that person shall then be cut off from his people for he did not present the offering of the Lord at its appointed time. So you have two groups of people. You had the first person who missed it for a legitimate reason. The school teachers would call that the excused absence. And then you've got the person who missed the holiday observance for the unexcused reason. God is patient with one. He's not patient with the other. And I have a great phrase that I saw in a commentary. It says this, weakness is helped. Rebellion is never tolerated.
2: That is fantastic and, and really does capture uh, the essence over here. You see how serious it is uh, for a person to violate these commands. And, and we don't understand why. You know, we say to ourselves, murder, we can understand. Uh, Idolatry, we can, we can understand some of the more serious uh, prohibitions. Uh, but, but in our minds, and it's hard for us to reconcile, why would the punishment be so severe? But God is telling us that there are spiritual dimensions which we don't understand. And this is why it's so significant. And by the way, that could also be why God gave the people this second chance, because the spiritual growth that you can have by taking advantage of this holiday and these commandments might be so great that he needs to give people uh, that opportunity uh, once they want it. So it works both ways in that realm as well.
1: As we continue in chapter 9, we get to verse 15, and the topic becomes the cloud, the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God, and the Lord promised to lead the people of Israel out of slavery into the promised land, and this is the method he chose. It wasn't a neon light. It wasn't a GPS. It was a cloud that descended over the tabernacle, and when it rested there, the people were to stay there, and we've talked in previous discussions about the camp setup, that it was very simple and very organized how the tabernacle would be in the center there's 12 tribes so four on the north south east and west and on the east side was the tribe of judah and judah would leave first when the cloud would ascend up into the air and start moving then the whole camp would set up and chapter 10 we'll talk about the trumpets of the priests who gave the commands to move but talk about the presence of god as demonstrated and illustrated by the cloud
2: This was a a reality which the people lived with in the desert, and the idea was to establish this as the model for all history. It's not going to continue in this open revelation, but during their years in the desert, the idea was cement this concept that God is the one who has to lead you in life. And that's why, for example, in verse 18 in chapter 9, those first words, right, by the word of God they will camp, and by the, But they will travel, and by the word of God, uh, they will camp. It's just this powerful idea that who should lead our lives? Is it is it uh, chasing monetary wealth? Is it chasing other pursuits? Or is it uh, chasing God and letting God lead us in our lives? And this was the idea with this cloud, and that's, why, I think, also why it was so, so to speak, simple. Because uh, the concept was it's something representing God and God's presence, and the people learned from this that this has to be their guiding light, even when they enter the land of Israel, when they enter into a more a less supernatural reality, but to take the lesson from the cloud with them.
1: Numbers chapter, nine, Numbers chapter 9, verse 16 said, it was a cloud by day and the appearance of fire by night. And I love the contrast. Verse 17, whenever the cloud was lifted from over the tent, afterward the sons of Israel would then set out. And when the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. So we have a very famous Christian song right now that says, if you say go, I will go, speaking to the Lord, of course. And if you say stay, I will stay. And I think that's the image here. God may be telling us to move forward in faith or in relationship or in our career or a business or education. He may be saying move forward. And if so, we need to go. He may be saying stay and rest, and wait on me, and if he does, say stay, we need to stay.
2: And the people, you know, might have asked themselves, why are we going now, or why are we resting so quickly and it goes against what they would have thought they should be doing as they marched their way towards Israel but there really was this obedience and their recognition that exactly what you just said pastor that they have to follow what God tells them and and it's not necessarily about what they on their own would have determined is best
1: your verse that you can prove your point there is numbers chapter 9 verse 22 whether it was 2 days or a month or a year That the cloud lingered over the tabernacle, staying above it. The sons of Israel remained camped and did not set out. But when it was lifted, they did set out. So there's again the idea of when you say go, I will go. When you say stay, I will stay. In other words, I've got to be watching for the Lord's signals, I've got to be in close contact with Him. We would call that a devoted prayer life, a devoted relationship with the Lord, so I know what His will is for me. And when He says stay, I'm ready to receive that command. When he says go, I need to be ready to receive that command and be on the alert, if you will. So this is really talking about daily devotion and staying close to God, a continual walk with the Lord, we might call it.
2: Very much so. And uh, what's, what's imperative is to have our eyes open to see those messages, to see those teachings from God, to see God's direction. That is the key. And it's complicated. It's very, very difficult. Uh, I would say at times uh, a great challenge to have that clarity. But that's what we're called to do. And, and over and over again in this section, uh, that's required of us. And if we even go back for a moment to the opening you know, title of the portion, if you want to go up, you want to raise up, you want to grow spiritually, you have to do so with God's direction.
1: And God is very s- simple often and very clear in his commands to us. We say in our church, Rabbi, that we do not have a... No, this is what we say. God does not have a speaking problem. We have a listening problem. And when you get to Numbers chapter 10, it's very clear how the Lord said he would speak to the people through the trumpets. These are silver trumpets that were made for the priests to give these commands. And this is not the ram's horn, the shofar. That's an animal horn. This is silver trumpets. And if it was a short blast... It had one command, and if it was a long blast, this is kind of like ancient Morse code, I guess. It had a different command, but it was very structured on when it was time to get up and travel and everyone pack up the camp and start to move, and when it was time to have the holidays and when it was time for Shabbat. And these commands that the priests gave for the people using the trumpets, it's all laid out here in Numbers chapter 10.
2: That's it's a whole discussion There are even commentaries that draw to the holiday that we have of Rosh Hashanah, the first of the year when we blow the shofar, and they actually draw lessons from here because this is talking about when there was a time to gather the people together or if there was a war there's a constant theme of this blowing of the shofar or blowing of the trumpets as a reaction or as a way of calling people together or as a way of inspiring the people when it came time for war and that's why it does actually say you know even in verse 10 it talks about on the holidays uh this is something which you need to do it was really a part of the ritual we only have a residue of that on Rosh Hashanah but Seem to have been central uh, to their existence uh, during that time.
1: And again, the idea of order and process, because as you get later on in chapter 10, it talks about each of the people. And verse 13, they moved out for the first time according to the commandment of the Lord through Moses. And then each of the people, leaders of these families or clans, it was a very orderly process and... Always the tribe of Judah went first, and we who follow after Jesus know he is from the tribe of Judah. He's called the Lion of Judah, and the symbol for the tribe of Judah was the lion, and so they always went first in the travels. But all the rest of chapter 10 has very simple instructions about who was to go. It's back to the commentary you gave earlier about everyone has their assigned role in the kingdom of God.
2: Very much. You'll see this over and over again repeated um, and people accepted that. People accepted the sense of order. I think people thrive uh, on that sense of order. When there's chaos and lack of clarity, that makes it far more difficult uh, to be spiritual and to be effective, both in life, but also in, in the service of God. And this is something which you see over and over again uh, through the Torah.
1: As we get to the end of chapter 10, Moses goes to his Apparently, brother-in-law, Hobab is the name, and he asked him to go with them, to travel with them, who wasn't a Jew, and the brother-in-law said, no, I'm going to go back to my own people, and Moses says in chapter 11, verse 31, please do not leave us inasmuch as much as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us, so it was like, we need you to be the scout, we need you to do the recon for us, so Moses, who was led by the Lord directly, is now asking somebody else, a non-Jew, for help.
2: So yes, so we understand that this was actually his father-in-law, Jethro, and there's actually a significant discussion about why his name here is different uh, than it is everywhere else. Some people say that it was just a discussion about this, but that he's literally Rashi, which is the primary commentary that we have, Uh, says that he is uh, actually Jethro. And it's an amazing discussion, because if you remember, uh, Jethro came and joined the Israel camp at an earlier point uh, with Moses' wife and sons, and now it seems like he's not planning on continuing with them. And Moses offers him all kinds of gifts and benefits and says, please come with us. And he says, no, I'm going back to where I came from. And it's a fascinating discussion, And the amazing part is, there's no conclusion to it. Usually at the end of the discussion, you'd say, okay, and he went back to his homeland, or or, he joined the people of Israel. And you don't have that here. And it seems that the conversation itself is somehow supposed to be the eternal lesson. I had one teacher who said, perhaps the lesson here is the very opposite of the second Passover that we talked about before. That here you have Moses promising somebody anything he can want, and he still says, no, I'm going back home. You see that if somebody doesn't want something spiritual, if they're not interested, no matter what you promise them or try to bribe them with, so to speak, uh, or no matter what inspiration God gives them, they're not going to go for it. It works both ways. On the one hand, if you want something badly enough, anything is possible. On the flip side, if you don't want it, no matter what comes your way, you're not going to be able to achieve it.
1: So we have the idea of how much of God's presence do I want? How much of God's direction do I want? And there is a sense that the Lord will give us what we ask for. If we ask for his presence and his righteousness and his guidance, we'll receive that. And if we ask him to go away and leave us alone and let us be the God of our own lives, he'll let us have that as well.
2: Very much so. We, we have a statement in the Talmud that in the direction that a person wants to go, that's where God will let him go. He'll be there to help you and bring you along spiritually if you want to grow and and, and reach the highest of places. But if you want to go on your merry own way, then he'll let that happen as well. We have free choice. We're put in a world where we can decide where we want to go, and God will help us along uh, the way. Uh, But ultimately, it comes down to our choice and our decisions, and then he'll help us one way or the other.
1: To illustrate that point, let's go to the end of chapter 10 of Numbers, and there's this song of praise that Moses says... Moses says in verse 35, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, that's the Ark of the Covenant, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So he's praising God for the presence of the Lord in their midst. And then right next to that, chapter 11, verse 1, the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. So the people had the privilege of seeing God's direction in the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. And yet now comes the gripiness, the complaining, the woe is me. And what they're complaining about is they don't have enough variety of foods. Now God is giving them the miracle of manna every day in the wilderness and they're complaining they don't have enough food and god is quite angry it says very clearly his anger was kindled so we can break the heart of our heavenly father when we don't remain grateful for his blessings but instead turn into complaining people
2: it is one of the most tragic (laughs) turns of events And you're reading this build up we leave we leave egypt with the exodus and then we have leviticus and the tabernacle and god's presence comes to the camp And they get all ready with the army and the encampments and making their way towards Israel. And then all of a sudden, in chapter 11, it all falls apart as the people begin to complain, and this sends us into a spiral, which will ultimately leave the people to remain in Israel, in the desert, and, and 40 years later they can go into Israel. It'll lead to the spiral of Moses not making it to Israel, Aaron not making it to Israel. It all just falls apart, and it's a story of human nature which is our failures and our inability at times to just capitalize on the great things that are happening and focus on the positive, and human beings' nature to focus on the negative and let that bring us down. And it's, it's tragic in nature. Uh, it's something which you see, by the way, throughout certainly the Old Testament, and I'm curious if it applies in the New Testament as well, of people time and time again at moments on the, on the cusp of greatness and uh, human nature coming into play and the negative drawing them down.
1: Well, I think it's not only on the cusp of greatness, but it's following greatness. You've seen a miracle, and the next day your faith is weak in the New Testament, the famous story about Jesus walking on the water on the Sea of Galilee, that comes right after, this is Matthew chapter 14 and 15, right after he had fed the thousands of people who were without food and he did a miracle to feed all these hungry people. And right after that, his disciples were afraid and thought he was a ghost or someone trying to to scare them. And what we say about the disciples there is, you just saw a miracle. Why was your faith so weak? Why didn't you trust God today after you saw him do a miracle yesterday? And it's human nature. It's it's universal. Those two stories that we're talking about, the book of Numbers and the book of Matthew, we're talking, you know, 2,000 years separating them possibly. And the people are still the same, that the struggle for faithfulness is so hard to maintain. And... I like one commentator in Numbers chapter 11. You get to verse 5. We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt. Yeah, you were a slave. And the cucumbers (laughs) and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. It's like they want to have a menu that they can choose from. And then it says, but there's nothing to eat except this manna. Where is the meat? Now, we're going to talk about God's miracle provision of the meat, in this case quail. But, Rabbi, let's don't forget we're talking 600,000 men. So, plus women and children, we're talking two to three million people, and they had a lot of animals. They had livestock with them. If they're asking for meat, why didn't they eat the meat of their own animals?
2: Yeah, so first of all, we have to remember that God brought them this manna from heaven, and they're they're being fed this food, and it's unbelievable that that in and of itself wasn't satisfactory to them. We have all kinds of traditions about how it could taste like anything they wanted to taste, and uh, it's unbelievable to see that uh, they would have it this way. Now, what's amazing is your question, uh, that same commentary that I mentioned before, Rashi asks that question. He said it straight out, exactly what you said it, Pastor. He says They didn't have meat, right? They, they, they had meat. It says they had flocks and they had cattle. And he also says that when they entered the land of Israel, they clearly had it because it talks about the tribes that stayed on the other side of the Jordan because they had so much cattle and flocks. So clearly they didn't run out of it. So what's going on over here? And Rashi says something unbelievable. He says they were just looking for something to complain about. They were just griping. They had the meat. They had it there and yet they were still complaining which is a whole other level to human nature where you can have the solution right in front of you and you're just trying to grasp at something because our nature is to complain our nature is not to just accept all the
1: blessings that we have continuing in numbers chapter 11 you see the stress upon moses He really says, why is this my problem? Why am I having to deal with all of this? Verse 12, was it I who conceived all this people? The answer is obviously no. Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give to all this people? Verse 14, I alone am not able to carry all this people. It is too burdensome for me. So a very tragic verse. This is Numbers 11, number 15. If you are going to deal this way with me, Moses speaking to God, please kill me at once if I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. He says, I can't take the stress of this. All these people and their unfaithfulness are becoming too big a burden for me.
2: It's quite remarkable. You see the human side of, of Moses and you know here you've done so much for people and they turn on you in this way. We're going to see this happen again uh, where he can't uh, handle uh, what's happening. And You see the human side, but you see that he reaches out to God. That's the way he responds to it. He reaches out to God, and he actually uh, tries to find some way, some way uh, to solve uh, the problem, but he does say, this is too much for me, uh, I can't, I can't handle this, but he's talking to God, and that gives God the ability to respond to him and say, okay, here, Moses, here's what you have to do. So on the one hand, you see that he's a human being, You see that he has human emotions, and it's okay uh, to feel those emotions and even failures. Uh, But what he does with it is that he turns to God, and that ultimately uh, provides the solution and the salvation.
1: And that solution is Numbers chapter 11, verse 16. The Lord said to Moses, gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people. And what he does is, verse 17, then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you, and I will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you will not bear it alone. So the idea, one, is shared leadership, but also that God can use other people than just Moses to help bless and lead the people of Israel.
2: And that's an important lesson for him and for us, for Moses to realize that it's not all on his shoulders, and that's something which will ease the burden, especially when the people complain. And it's an important lesson for us as well to realize, ultimately, like we said, it's about God, and God uses either one intermediary or a few intermediaries to... Uh, But it's never one person, Uh, and that's why I'm jumping ahead right now, but for example, the burial place of Moses is not revealed because we don't want him to be somebody that we focus on as a human being. It all has to be uh, towards God, and that's what we learn over here as well. When God says there's elders, there's other people, it's not all Moses, and it's important for the people to learn that, remember Going back to the story of the golden calf, that's one of the reasons why the people failed. Is because they said, where has Moses gone? Without Moses, they were lost. And God doesn't want there to be a situation that without this human being or another, uh, they're lost. Because it ultimately has to be about God. And that's part of the message that
1: we learn here as well. We get to a very troubling verse. Numbers 11, verse 18, when the Lord says, okay, you want some meat? Okay, Verse 19, you shall eat not one day, not two, not five, not 10, not 20, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you. In other words, you want meat, I'll give you meat so much so that you'll become sick of it. The Lord really says, if you receive my gifts as a blessing, they are sweet and they are enjoyable. If you demand things from me, even if I give you what you want, it's, it's sickening to you. That's
2: a, a powerful lesson, which, again, I have to imagine that all people of faith share, which is the idea that physical pleasures, as nice as they may seem to us, at a certain point, uh, they're not uh, enticing to us. You can get to a point with anything physical where it's too much. And you're sick of it, and that's why the world to come is not a physical pleasure. It's spiritual, because spirituality is something which can last forever. But God says so clearly over here, you want meat, you'll reach a point where you'll be sick of meat. And all of us know we've been at meals, and we've been in situations where we don't want to look at another piece of food. Uh, Even foods that are usually so delicious to us and that we desire, uh, there's a limit to how much a human being can handle of this. Uh, I think people feel that way in terms of, let's say, physical vacations. They're enjoyable, but at a certain point it's, okay, I can't continue with this anymore. That's in the physical realm. And the contrast has to apply in the spiritual, which is something which can absolutely last forever.
1: As we continue with this week's Torah portion, let's look at another verse in Numbers chapter 11, verse 24. Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. He gathered 70 men of the elders of the people, stationed them around the tent. The Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, and he took, this is God, took of the Spirit who was upon Moses and placed the Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, upon the 70 elders, and when it came about that the Spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, and here's a strange sentence, but they did not do it again. So God gave them the gift of prophecy and the gift of the Holy Spirit, but only one occasion. Why only once?
2: So one of the messages here is Moses is the one who, is the one who gets continuous prophecy whenever he wants, to whatever degree he wants. Uh, whereas for other people, it's not that way. So there was some kind of a continuous flow which was happening over here, but doesn't continue. It could come at other times, but it's not going to be continuous. So there's the difference between the relationship that Moses had with God and everyone else, where it's not going to be a continuous relationship, but something which is only intermittent in nature.
1: And then we see another miracle God's. Grace, his patience. He gives them food, in this case, quail. And it says at the end of chapter 11, there went forth a wind, verse 31, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and on the other side, two cubits deep on the ground. The people spent all day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail and they had the meat. But the Lord was angry. It says the Lord was uh, the anger of the Lord, verse 33, was kindled against the people. So you have this idea that the Lord used a strong wind to interrupt the migratory pattern of the quail that would go normally, they would travel northeasterly from Africa through Israel to Russia. That's even how the bird watchers come to Israel to see all the birds migrating even today. And the Lord used this strong wind to interrupt affect their migratory pattern, but here's the question theologically, if God gave them what appeared to be a gift and an answer to their prayer, and then they ate of it, why was he angry at them for doing so? So here you see God
2: essentially saying to the people, this is what you want, this is what I'll give to you. I'm not happy that you've requested it, but if this is what you're demanding, this is what you think you need, then we're going to go move forward with it. And it's one of these uh, challenges, as you've asked in the question, uh, but God does give people things which they want, if that's what they feel uh, that they want to do, uh, even if it's not necessarily uh, the best thing for them. Uh, and that's going back to that earlier message of God directing people in the way they want to go. And he says, to so them, this is what you want, let's go. Uh, I'll give you exactly what you want.
1: Is that another instance when the people of Israel asked for a king and God said, no, I am your king, and they called out for a king because we want to be like the people around us, and they ended up with King Saul? Is that another example?
2: Very much so. Very much. You see this, this notion of God giving the people, if they're all coming together and asking for something, he'll give it to them. But by the way, he will also make sure that they know that it's not necessarily the best thing for them, and then they have to decide how they
1: want to deal with that. So now we get to our last chapter in a lengthy portion today in the, the Parashah Numbers chapter 12, and it's a discouraging one again, and this time Miriam and Aaron, the older sister and older brother of Moses, begin to speak against him and gripe about him. And one idea potentially is in chapter 12, verse 1, because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. So previously he was married to a Midianite woman, Moses was. That's where Jethro, Yitro, the father-in-law, comes from. So I'm not sure if this is a second wife at the same time or if the previous wife has passed away, but he has another wife from the region of Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia in Africa. Miriam and Aaron begin to gripe about their leadership of their brother and say, basically, what about us? Why can't we be leaders also?
2: Yeah, it's a very difficult uh, discussion to understand. And by the way, in our tradition, this is still the same wife that Moses had, uh, Zipporah, from uh, the area of Midian. And it was different, different uh, race, for sure, than uh, the people of Israel. And the discussion, actually, in our tradition is that Moses divorced himself uh from his wife he could not be on the holy spiritual level always available for god while he was involved in the physical relationship uh with a woman and they were talking about it whether well, this is the right thing this is the wrong thing and they said why is Moses that special that he's so different than we are and this was what we call speaking lashon hara this was speaking negatively about someone and again the bible as it does over and over again shows us that the greatest of people can have failures And the challenge is how do they deal with that failure? And here's one example where they failed by talking about Moses in this pejorative way and having to deal with the consequences of it.
1: And as we finish this chapter, I think it's quite noticeable. In chapter 12, verse 5, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and miriam this is like the ultimate come to the principal's office because every other time the lord spoke to moses and here he spoke directly to the two people who were doing the complaining
2: yes very much so and it comes right to them and now we have to deal with the consequences will come to them and you see clearly how they just come right before god and they have to hear why they were wrong about what they said and they are told that Moses is different than everyone else. And Pe- oh, Pe- in verse 8, I God, I speak to Moses directly uh, with no riddles and no visions that are confusing. And they need to deal with the punishment as well.
1: And the punishment for Miriam was leprosy. It says in verse 9, the anger of the Lord burned against them. In verse 11, Aaron begs Moses to forgive us and, and ask the Lord to forgive us. And Moses in verse 13 prays for his older sister to be healed and Miriam suffers the consequence of being put up uh, put out the outside the camp for 7 days and here's a beautiful sentence the next to last verse numbers 12 verse 15 Miriam was shut up outside the camp for 7 days and the people did not move on until Miriam was received again so there's punishment but there's also patience that God said, I'm not going to lead the people to leave you behind. I'm going to let them wait for you so you will suffer your just punishment, but you will not be left out of my covenant people.
2: And that is, again, you see the respect, you see the recognizing of punishment, but also repentance, but the respect. All the people know that Miriam is suffering this. It's happening in front of everyone. It's not hidden from them. And they have the respect to wait for her as well, recognizing her greatness despite her sin. That's a critical, critical message because, like I said, throughout the Bible, great, great people. They sin, there's repentance, there's a process, and we still recognize their greatness.
1: Rabbi, it's been a long discussion. We've covered a lot of verses today. Why don't you wrap up a few lessons for us from this parasha?
2: For me, it's the, the title of the parasha, Baha Lodhra, if you want to be raised up. If you don't want to be raised up, like we saw with the story of Moses' father-in-law, you're not going to be raised up. If you do want it, the most impossible things can happen, because God can make anything happen, like the second Passover. And you see the theme throughout. You don't want God's food, God will give you something else that's not going to be good for you. But it's in your hands to determine the direction, and that's the way uh, that you can grow spiritually.
1: We always enjoy our time with the listeners studying the Word of God. Rabbi, thank you for your lessons today, and Shabbat Shalom.
0: Thank you. Shabbat Shalom to you and all the listeners. Thank you for joining us for the Lone Star Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Lone Star Podcast to learn when new episodes are ready. Please join Rabbi Dove Lipman and Pastor Trey Graham next time to expand your mind and encourage your soul. May the Lord bless you and draw you to Himself this week.